0: This time, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the letter of Paul to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 1. I'll begin reading at verse 1 to verse 5. There are many things I love about the song, Jesus Loves Me, this I know. One of them is that the children in this con- congregation often ask to sing that song because they love the song. But also, I love that the song is simple. simple. Not simplistic, but simple. There's a big difference between the two. It is simply profound in its teaching that it speaks to adults and little children alike in the same way that blesses our hearts. Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. If you're using a Pew Bible, that can be found on page 1154 this morning. We begin a sermon series on the letter of Paul to the Galatians, and we will start with the first five verses. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would speak to us through your living and active word, And that you, O Lord, would deepen our faith and hope in Christ. And that deepened faith would cause us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. To walk in obedience to your word. That we would put to death the old nature, the old self, and put on the new man. The new nature that is solely found in Jesus Christ and by your Spirit. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see, O oh Lord, which you are teaching the Church of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Congregation of Christ, if God sent a letter to the churches in America today, what would it be? Would it be a letter of commendation or a letter of correction? Would it be a letter of denunciation? Or a letter of joy and gladness for their faithful service. What would God say to the churches in America today? Well, we really don't need God to send us a new letter because he has a living letter already given to us. You see, in the Bible, we have many letters. We have books of the Bible written in many genres. And so... We have what what we have in the Bible are letters that speak to spiritual issues in the church, spiritual crises in the church that apply across every generation. For example, in Revelation you have the seven churches in Revelation and God speaks to the issues and crises in each one of those churches. And in those seven churches, you have issues and crises that are common in every generation. Do the, does the church have ears to hear and eyes to see what the Spirit is telling the church at Emmanuel? The churches in Demot, the churches in Wheatfield, the churches around the world. Because God speaks through a living book. And he speaks through this living letter, the Galatians. He speaks to a spiritual crisis, which can certainly be characteristic of churches today. As was customary in the Roman world, letters had a format. And Paul follows the customary format of writing letters, the introduction. The teaching and spirit of Paul's letter, however, differs from every other letter that he's written, except maybe one other. The big difference between the Galatians and most of the other letters that he writes is this. He doesn't thank God for them yet. Yet. You see, in every other letter, Paul makes it a point to introduce, provide an introduction, and then say, I pray to God with thanksgiving for you. I thank God for you. He doesn't do that here. Paul is so concerned for this this church that he makes a passionate plea for them throughout the course of this letter. So instead of saying, After his introduction, I thank God for you. He says, No, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who calls you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel.
1: Paul is deeply concerned. This is a letter of concern.
0: He's deeply troubled. And throughout the course of this sermon series, we'll see why, you'll see why, I'll see why. The early church father, Chrysostom, he was known as the Golden Tongue because he was known as one of the best preachers in that day in the early church. And the Golden Tongue said this about this letter He said that Galatians breathes an indignant spirit. Paul is upset. And we'll, we'll see that and we'll save Paul's concern and purpose for writing the letter until next week. But that needs to get out in the forefront. We need to think about that. This morning we look closely at the introduction of the letter, which is very important. We look at, look at the introduction in three parts. The author's identity, title, and authority. We look at the recipient's. Identity and calling. And we look at the Lord's blessing upon the churches. This was customary in the churches of those days to write in this manner. The introduction. Let's look first at the author's identity, title, and authority. Look, look in your Bible with me. Please keep your Bibles open, congregation. Paul, an
1: Apostle. He doesn't say
0: the Reverend Dr. Paul. Paul, an apostle. The identity of the author is Saul, whose name was changed to Paul. And his authorship has not really been debated much throughout the course of church history. And this letter is very characteristic of Paul's use of language and his apostolic ministry. This is thoroughly Paul's letter. And Paul, the name Paul is a Roman name, but we know that his name was Saul. He became Paul in Acts chapter 13 when he was set apart by the Holy Spirit, called by the church to go and minister to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 13, verse 9. Now Paul, when he was writing his letters, he usually had a scribe write for him. And there's a fancy term for it, an amanuensis. You don't need to know that, but it's a fancy term. And that's what they used back then, these, these scribes, we call them today. And Paul would dictate what he, wanted to be, what he wanted to be said and written. But Paul writes this himself. He writes it himself. Look with me at chapter
1: 6, verse 11.
0: See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. This is a letter of concern. A letter of concern. And he identifies himself as Paul, and he writes it with his own hand. That's the identity of Paul. And his title is an apostle. Paul an apostle. Apostle means one who is sent. And he's an apostle in the narrow sense of the word. There's a narrow sense of the word apostle and a broader sense of the word apostle. He is an apostle in the narrow sense. That is, he is one of the apostles who spoke to the risen Christ. Christ spoke to him on the road to Damascus when Christ caused his eyes to be blind and Christ converted him, saved him by his mercy And told Paul, you will suffer for my sake. You will be an apostle to the Gentiles. In the narrow sense of the word. Because apostle also has the the meaning of ambassador. Paul goes on behalf of Christ Jesus himself. And God the Father. Note, he says, not from men nor through man. No, my apostleship comes from God, he says. No man called me to this task. Jesus Christ called me to this task. That's why you have there, look with me at verse 1 again. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, the God-man, right? And God the Father, who raised him from the dead. So the risen Christ, the one who is raised from the Father, has the authority to call and equip the Apostle Paul to be sent out to the Gentiles, to peoples, to represent Christ himself. You see, when Paul goes out as an ambassador, an agent of Christ, he speaks on behalf of Christ. He speaks on behalf of Christ. That is so important. And so he's a, an apostle, one who is sent in the narrow sense of the word. You have the 12 apostles called by Christ, who witnesses apostolic, his, his uh, uh, ministry. And then you have Paul, who becomes an apostle, the 13th, by Christ himself by the risen Christ. But you also have apostles in the broader sense of the word. Missionaries, church planters, pastors, preachers, they are one sent by the church who are under the authority of the head of the church, Christ himself. To distinguish between the two The apostle in the neural sense, sense, capital A. Apostle in the broader sense, lowercase A. Paul identifies himself and his title, that he is an apostle, one who is sent by Jesus Christ. What is Paul doing by, by introducing himself this way? I'm Paul, I'm an apostle. Not through man or by man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Remember that God raised Jesus from the dead. Oftentimes we say Jesus rose from the dead. He was raised from the dead. God the Father raised him from the dead. We know that Jesus has authority to raise his own life. He said it himself. But the Father raised the Son so that the Son is vindicated in his ministry and life, and was given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and tongue confess. This is the risen Christ you call Paul. Why does Paul introduce himself and his title this way? Because when he speaks to them, and when he speaks to us, he wants to show what? What does he want to do? If you got a letter from the President of the United States that comes, what comes along with that. If a commanding officer comes to you and you're in the military and the commanding officer comes on behalf of the general, what comes along with that letter? Authority. Authority. Because everything that follows, what the apostle Paul writes, comes with divine authority. Not man's authority, but divine authority. Authority. Because Jesus is Lord and lives forevermore, by the power of the Spirit, he calls and equipped Paul to represent him. And he comes with authority. Listen, friends, if there's no resurrection, there's no Christ. If there's no resurrection, there's no apostolic ministry. If there's no Christ or no resurrection, there's no forgiveness of sins. If there's no resurrection, there is no hope. And what we're doing here is deceitful, dishonest, and ridiculous. But because he's raised and he sent an apostle to be an ambassador of Christ, Paul writes with the authority of the risen Christ. So when you and I read the letter of Galatians, do we humble ourselves under the word? A great phrase used by Christians of old, humbling ourselves under the Bible, under the Word, because it is an authoritative letter in my life. This letter and all Scripture is a living document. It speaks to us today and communicates to us words of eternal life, words of warning. It's a living letter that teaches us about man's relationship to God. It's a living letter that teaches us the way back to God. It's a living letter that teaches us how to be forgiven of our sins as lawbreakers. It teaches us how we are made right before God. It teaches us how to be set free. To be set free. And I dare to say that there are some, perhaps here in this sanctuary, or watching via live stream who are in bondage. Maybe you're even a Christian and you feel like you're in bondage. Like you could never do anything right.
1: That sin has such
0: a grip on you. This living letter speaks to this. And it speaks with authority. It speaks of the way to be set free from sin. To be set free from the devil. To be set free from the tyranny of death. And as we hear the preaching of the word from the letter to the Galatians, we'll see how the letter addresses modern-day doctrinal issues and concerns in the life of the church. We'll learn to take heed of his exhortations, and we'll hear the Spirit's plea to believe it and apply the whole truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul, his identity, title, and authority are rooted in the Father and the Son. Secondly, the recipient's identity. Like every letter, there's an audience or recipient. Who's Paul writing to? He says he's writing to the churches. To the churches of Galatia, Galatia. Paul includes in verse two all the brothers who are with him, with me. Paul is the main author, though. Paul is the main author communicating by the Spirit, the truth and he's writing to the churches of galatia what is their identity and calling geographically geographically galatia was located just east of asia and west of cappadocia if you have that journal that was provided for you if you look in the front cover there's a map and you'll see where galatia is who were they what were they Not a time or place to get into all the nuances of what people think concerning this area of Galatia. Is it significant? Yes, it is. What we need to know about it, about the geography, is that Paul went to Gentile land. Paul went to what we call unchurched lands. Paul went to pagan lands. Paul preached Christ crucified and risen to those who lived apart from God. And in Acts chapter 13 and 14, we have recorded there the first missionary journey, which records Paul's ministry among southern Galatia, Iconia, Lystra, Derbe. In these three places, he ministered, he preached the gospel, many were converted In Iconium, for example, unbelieving Jews began to poison the minds of those who were converted to Christ. So these recipients, they heard the gospel through Paul's ministry. They heard the gospel. They turned from paganism and idol worship to the true God through faith in Jesus Christ. But now these Jews, unbelieving Jews, were coming and poisoning their minds against Paul and against the truth. And Paul and Barnabas suffered for the sake of the gospel. In fact, in Lystra, in Acts chapter 13, verse 19, Paul was stoned by the people of Lystra. The Greeks and the Jews believed in the gospel, and the people of Lystra and unbelieving Jews were upset and mad. And so they stoned Paul, left him for dead, dragged him out of the city. What does Paul do? Does he cry foul? Does he leave and, and, and tuck tail and run? You know you know what he does? He gets up, goes back to Lystra, goes back to Derby, goes back to Iconium to preach and teach to the disciples there after being stoned. I don't know, I find that so amazing. <laughs> What would I do in that situation? Having been stoned and suffered for the cause of Christ, and now I'm going to get up and go, I'm going back. I'm going back. Because the Christians there need to be discipled in Christ.
1: They go back
0: to Lystra and Iconium to strengthen the churches and encourage them to continue on in the faith. And he's been an example of that to the recipients of the letter. So the recipients of the letter lived in the region of Galatia, a Gentile, pagan, idol worship area. But they were converted to Christ and now they're called churches in Galatia. There's a spiritual identity and calling because Paul calls them churches, which is very important. Churches... In Galatia refers to local churches geographically, but they are a spiritual body. They're a spiritual body. When we talk about church, we're talking about a body of believers. We're talking about people who have been born again, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, united to Christ by faith, and placed into his family, God's family. Church congregation literally means called out ones. Called out ones. A spiritual people called out of the world and called into a kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. That's the church. We're not of this world anymore. We're of the heavenly Jerusalem. We're of the things of God. And of heaven. Of the spirits. And so the church isn't a building made with hands. The church isn't a social club to find friends. Although... We know the blessing of friendship within the spiritual body of Christ. Friendship is important, but it's not a social club. The the church is a called out of the world community. Neither is the church a place where we dream of a Christian community that is contrary to the word. You see, we have dreams of what the Christian community ought to be. But so often it's not what the Bible says it is to be. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may ever be so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. No, the Church of Jesus Christ is a Christian community. Bought up by the blood of Jesus Christ, set apart for Christ to serve and worship Him. The churches in Galatia, Paul identifies them as a people set apart. And these churches, like every church in every generation, are composed of sinners. Sinners saved by grace. Sinners saved by grace. We're not a museum of saints, as once said, but we're a sanctuary of sinners saved by grace. Because there's only one person who is righteous, only one who is the righteous one, and he is the Lord Jesus Christ. And by him and faith in his name, we are made righteous, and we are made to be a church. And so when we come to worship, we come with broken and contrite hearts knowing that Christ Jesus, the Lord of the church, is at work and setting us apart, making us right with God and saved from our sins. That is the recipient's identity and calling. A spiritual people, a body of believers in and through Jesus Christ. And then we have, lastly, the Lord's blessing upon the churches. So you have the author, the recipients, and now we have the Lord. And what does the Lord do? He blesses his children. Look with me in your Bible at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you'd like to write in your Bibles, circle from. Circle from. Paul, as an ambassador, a spokesperson from Christ, is bringing the Lord's blessing to the people from God himself and the Son. That's pretty profound, isn't it? That God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, through Christ's apostle, blessed the churches saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace or favor to you, peace to you, these come from God alone through Christ alone. Comes from God alone through Christ alone. God is blessing you, congregation. For example, at the beginning of the service, you receive the greeting of God. And what is happening? The pastor, on behalf of Christ, is telling the church, or administering to the church, the Lord's blessing. In other words, the Lord is saying to you, grace to you. Your unmerited favor of God comes to you. You don't deserve it, but he gives it to you. Because you've been bought by the blood of Jesus, saved by his grace. He says... As he welcomes you into his presence, grace to you. My favor be upon you because you're my child and I love you. I love you. You know, we go through worship services in a mundane way, in a trivial way at times. We we see the order of service or we're used to how churches worship and have orders of service. And I don't think we, a lot of times we don't get, get forethought into what's going on. We just see it as a program. You go boom, 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 and then you go off on your way. Let this be a reminder to us that when God welcomes into his presence, he's bestowing favor upon you because he loves you and has had mercy upon you. And not only that, he says peace to you. Peace to you. There can be chaos in your world. There could be chaos in your world. The world can seem like it's crumbling down before your very eyes. But in your soul, you can say it as well. Because God's peace is within you. He gives you peace. And the opposite of peace is enmity, chaos. And that peace that he gives in your soul comes solely through Jesus Christ, who did what? Look with me in your Bible. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. The Apostle doesn't say that Jesus gave Himself for our sins to save us from God's wrath at the end of the age, though that's true. He doesn't say that Jesus gave Himself for our sins to make atonement, though that's true. He doesn't say that Jesus came and gave himself for our sins to defeat death, sin, and hell altogether, though that's true. No, he says these specific words. Why? Why? To deliver us. Literally, the Greek word there means to remove us. To remove us. Take us out of. So he gave himself to take us out of the present evil age. Well, what is the present evil age? What is the present evil age? In Paul's writings, we learn that he speaks of the present age and the age to come. The present age is the age of evil and transgressions against God's law. The present age is the age where everyone is in Adam. What does that mean? That because Adam sinned, we all sin. And because we sin, we die. And because we sin, we deserve eternal condemnation. But Paul says, That this Jesus, through whom you receive grace and peace in your soul, gave himself up so that he takes you out of that age of sin and rebellion against God and placed you into an age to come. What does that mean? Let me explain it this way. We talk about eternal life in this way. When I die, I will enter eternal life. That's partly true. Do you know, Christian, if you confess the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are experiencing eternal life now? You are experiencing and knowing the age to come right now because Jesus, by his death, removed us from the age of sin, death, and hell, the age of rebellion against God. That's why it's called present evil age. And transferred us into his kingdom of light, where we walk by the Spirit and live by the Spirit, and we learn of eternal life now. So, yeah, we long for the day when we see Jesus, but we see him by faith now, and we walk in that new age to come, in the new creation. And look what Paul does. Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. This was God's will. This was God's will to send his son to die. Notice the death and resurrection of Christ are in this text thoroughly. He sent his son to die and rise from the dead to deliver his people from their sins. And you churches of Galatia, I'm speaking to you. And Paul, because this is a living letter, speaks to the churches of all ages. That this is God's will, the will of God and Father, that Jesus delivers us by his death and resurrection. And Paul cannot control himself. Because what does he end with? To whom be the glory forever and ever. What? Amen. Amen. In other words, Paul was so wrapped up in the grace of mercy of God. Paul was so profoundly moved and changed by the grace of God and the grace of God for the churches that it moves him to doxology. When was the last time you and I were moved to doxology? In your homes, at your workplace, in churches.
1: You know, sometimes I'll ask for an amen.
0: Why do I ask for an amen? Because we're moved to doxology. And an amen is a movement to doxology. To glory be to God. Amen. So be it. But that amen, does it come from the heart? Or do we pay lip service?
1: This is the introduction
0: of Paul's letter of concern and is thoroughly gospel centered. It's centered on the death and resurrection of Jesus and the calling of an apostle to administer the truth with authority to the churches of Galatia and to the churches of all generations. A few points in closing. I would encourage us as we work through this profound letter, this very deep letter, it's a very profoundly deep theological letter that God would grant wisdom and understanding as we sit under the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Because God teaches through his word by his spirit, and this is God's word communicated to us. Is it God's word or man's word? Yes. It is man's word in the sense that Paul wrote it. But God is the supreme author who led the apostles and prophets to write the word of God as they were led by the Spirit, 2 Peter chapter 1. And so as God being the supreme author, we sit under the author God to learn the very word of God that it may bring heart change. So pray for wisdom and understanding. Pray for God's Spirit to reveal our own sins and shortcomings. Because we can come to a a letter like this and see Paul's letter of concern and say, oh, he's only talking about the Galatians. I don't have anything to be concerned about, really? (laughs) I don't have to be anything concerned about in my life? That's called being naive and a bit arrogant. And as Paul says elsewhere, that we are to keep watch over our souls, that we are not to be naive but that we are to look to Christ in faith and hold fast and firm to the truth so that we be not deceived. Because all people everywhere, Christians can be deceived and tossed about by every wind of doctrine and sin, enticed by teachings and practices that please our fleshly desires and don't please God. And so we pray that God does some heart surgery on us that he takes out the scapel, the Holy Spirit, and plums into the depths of our hearts, cuts open our hearts, and brings healing and grace. Lastly, pray that God's love in Jesus will capture our hearts anew and afresh so that our worship of God and exaltation of Christ in our lives give him glory and honor and reflects the glory of God in our lives. Pray that God's love in Christ Will capture your heart and that your longing will be for Him and to live according to the truth because only the truth in Christ will set you and me free. Amen. Let's pray. O gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you, O Lord, for the living and active Word of God that is sharper than any double edged sword. And this word of God, by the power of your spirit, pierces our very souls. And so we ask, O oh Lord, that you, by your spirit and word, would draw us closer to you in faith. That the truth would sink deeply into our hearts and minds and cause us to walk in accordance with that truth. We pray that we be so filled with the love of Jesus that we, O oh Lord, with desire and long to plumb the depths of his love for us. And that love would move us to glorify your great name and to love our neighbor as ourself. Oh, Father, we pray that in all things you would be glorified, Christ exalted, and the Holy Spirit be praised to the glory of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen.